Welcome back, everyone. I am your host, Ryan Anthony Hernandez, and you are listening to the Truth That Heals podcast. Today, I am joined by author and survivor, Erica Bornman. And in this episode, you'll be hearing about her experiences, her life when she was in the cult, of what she went through. And in the second episode, you'll be hearing more about the healing journey and the actions she has been doing in her life to move forward, but also to bring awareness to all of the malicious things that are happening. Uh, So without further ado, this is the first part of the interview with Erica Bornman. Welcome again. You are listening to the Truth That Heals podcast. Today, I have special guest and author, Erica Bornman. Erica, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm so well, and thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here and to meet you kind of in person, (laughs) but to finally, like, yeah, be speaking to you. I'm very happy. For the audience, uh, just to kind of give a little context, I started reaching out to other survivors of cult, uh, religious abuse, and it led me to Twitter. And I started seeing uh, this, uh, so many lovely accounts. And one of them was um, Erica Bornman. And it led me to reading your book, uh, Mission of Malice. And I, I would love to hear a little bit more about your story. And of course, we invite everyone to read the book, but for those who who haven't read it yet and want to know more about it, uh, hopefully in this podcast, they'll understand a little bit more about you and they'll be rushing to get your book after this. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be lovely. (laughs) So can can you introduce us a little bit about uh, before, life before the mission? Yeah, so just an, I was an ordinary white girl growing up in apartheid South Africa. Um, so I obviously had a different experience to what I would later learn um, many of my fellow countrymen were having. But for me, life was just normal suburbs. I was born in Malawi. My father was a missionary teacher. And um, then we moved back to South Africa just before I turned five. And um, then when I was around the age of eight, my mother went to listen to some people preach and she fell under their spell. And that's how we were introduced to this wonderful um, mission station called Kwasi Zavantu in the foothills of what was then Natal and is now KwaZulu-Natal. And to put it in place, this is now mm, the late 1970s. We are definitely very much apartheid South Africa. And in this commune, it was a multiracial commune. So um, white people mixed with black people. And I know that that was very attractive to my dad. and my parents got sucked into this place. Um, they then left my brother, my sister, and myself there for 
close to a year while they went overseas to learn French because my dad wanted to go into French speaking Africa. And um, it, things turned very dark very quickly. Um, uh, they, 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 it's a place devoid of love. We were brought up in the fear of God and fear being the operative word. Everything was designed to strike fear into into our hearts. The punishments were severe. Uh, children were beaten in public, but severely beaten. Um, I mean, I grew up with hidings. You know, um, we got hidings from our parents when we were naughty, but nothing like what I what I witnessed there. We were shown horrible movies um, made by an American uh, man, Eustace Perkle, um, The Burning Hell and um, The Footman and, and, and movies like that, that, that really, and you know, ability to say, okay, this is someone's depiction of what they think hell might be. For me, this was reality, you know, and we were told every day that if you don't do what we say, um, that's where you're going to end up. So I wet my bed regularly. Um, and, um, and then my parents came back and we actually moved to Johannesburg for three years. Uh, my parent, my dad worked for a mission station, a mission organization called Open Doors that's not affiliated to this place at all. It was an organization or it is an organization that um, he was taking Bibles to Christians in what was then communist countries. Um, look, I, I am not religious anymore right now as an adult, and we'll probably chat about that at, at some point. So I have issues with missionaries. <laughs> I think it's all good and well to go and help people, but do you really have to like, force your religion on them in order for them to accept your help so I have issues with that but but anyway my dad was a good man um misguided in my opinion maybe but but he was a good man and then I had to just turn 15 and my dad said to me that Kwasi Sabantu was opening one of South Africa's first multiracial schools and they'd asked him to be the principal of the school. And he was so excited about that. And we were moving back there. And I had never told my dad how awful things were when they left us there. Because I think I was, on the one hand, I was trying to spare him from his bad decisions. Like I knew it would distress him. And I didn't want to distress him. But on the other hand, they had left us there. So there was a part of me that also thought that they kind of condoned what happened to us, you know. Um, but this time I thought it would be okay because my dad would be there, my protector, you know. He, he, he'd protect me from the worst. And then the day before school opened, he died of a heart attack. Um, yeah, he was 43. I mean, so young. Um, I was 15 and, and, and bereft. Um, and then things just went from bad to worse um, from there, I guess.
Okay, let me stop you right there. Um, so your your family, uh, I think you know, because reading your book, uh, was it your mom who was first introduced to the religion, or was it just your mom and dad together? Well, I think my mom kind of fell for the place, but my dad got on board with it. Um, I I don't know. I, I mean. And you'll know that I can't ask my mother about these things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's why the people who are listening, you gotta buy the book. Um, um, so you you're you were around how old? Eight years old, I believe you said. Yeah, eight or nine. I eight. yeah. And um, going to the book real quick because there's a scene there where, as I'm as I read it, I I felt guilty because you're explaining how your mother had to uh, burn the clothes, all your worldly possessions. And uh, these are, you know, for people who haven't been in the cult, uh, they will think right away, you know, red flags. But, you know, in my experience, you know, I would go to people's houses and say, hey, you need to burn this and you need to burn that, that's all evil. And so as I'm reading it, it kind of made me feel bad but it's all it's part of my journey too you know yeah. hearing other people's testimonies so i wanted to uh quickly uh if you can quickly share what were your thoughts as an 8 year old uh seeing your mom burning all of your possessions well it was only a few of my clothing items she was mainly burning all her clothes all her jewelry and her makeup um, and I think she retained like two outfits, um, one at, at top and two tops and skirts. Um, one was kind of paisley green and blue, and the other one was kind of cream with reddish flowers on it, from what I remember. Um, my clothes that that got burned were shorts and trousers. Um, because somewhere in Deuteronomy it says that women aren't allowed to wear men's clothing. And so that from then on, I wasn't allowed to wear shorts or trousers, you know. Um, and so watching my mom burn the clothing was, she looked serene, like we would, we, I was brought up that you don't, I don't question my parents, you know, we could discuss things, but um, you didn't ask why they were doing certain things. Um, you know, you could ask, why does the world work this way? But you didn't question their actions. And um, in, in the pocket of one of my trousers or shorts, she found a little love letter and a little necklace that a boy in my class had given me. And um, she, she burned that, um, and she told me that I'm not allowed to talk to boys anymore. Um, so the, the, I had to stop wearing shorts and trousers and I wasn't allowed to talk to boys anymore because everything that I did had to glorify God. Um, and obviously wearing the, that clothing and talking to boys didn't glorify God. So things changed quite drastically at home, but not so much at school because like she didn't have eyes at school. She couldn't yeah. control what I did at school. 
But at the school, it wasn't like a public school. You you went immediately to the mission. No, no, no. I was I was still in the government school. Um, okay. we we hadn't we weren't living at the mission yet. And even when even when they left us at the mission, when they went to France, we would um, take a bus to go to a government school, um, uh, fifty kilometers away, because their school was only established um, many years later. Okay. Um, and then you also, you also talk about the hidings, the beatings, um, but was there, a, you know, there's never really a just reason to beat the hell out of a kid, but, you know, in their perspective, what was their, uh, rationality to beat kids? Like for what reason would they do that? because they believe you have to break the spirit of a child by the age of three. And they believe that by beating the sin out of the child, you are ensuring its place in heaven. I have a friend whose father um, has cries today. They've left and he cries today and, and still begs them for forgiveness. He genuinely thought that he was doing God's will by beating them mercilessly. Um, he genuinely thought he was saving them from the devil by beating them like that. So that's the rationale. I think that there were, there are people there who actually enjoyed um, meeting out the punishment. Um, I don't believe in hell, but for those people, I wish that I did. It would be quite comforting to think that they'd end up in hell. Um, but um, for the large part, it was indoctrinated into everyone that you had to beat the devil out of the child. Oh, my God. Um, as as you're sharing this, I, I don't I don't want to, you know, like compare but it just I know, but it's interesting. It's just interesting because in in our experience in the community that I was in, you know, especially when I first joined, there were like a lot of slappings. Like for example, if if you're sleepy during prayer, and I was already 17, 18, and um it was if you're if you're sleepy, they'll slap you or they'll you know, do something to humiliate you. And I remember in in our community someone asked the superior uh why do you have to be so mean and his response was because i'm helping you to be holy so by me being mean and me slapping you i'm guaranteeing you a place in heaven and hearing what you're saying it's like they they beat the shit out of you as a way of a sanctification but like you're saying i would see an enjoyment in yeah. some of these people they for it's sure. very perverse for sure and you know one of the worst offenders um is still in charge of the school there today he's head of the school board um and he still preaches today there's been no no remorse whatsoever um i I was around 10 years old when we were called into a meeting. And when we were ch called as children to the upper room, they called it the upper room, I think, because they, they think they're modeling themselves on Jesus and his disciples, you know, like, but honestly, they are just a bunch of 
Am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Go ahead. They're just a bunch of assholes pretending to be holy. But anyway, whenever us children were called to a meeting at the upper room, we were filled with fear because we knew that at least one of us was going to get punished severely. And you'd only be hoping that it wasn't you. And on this day, my eight-year-old friend had been caught or had been seen stealing toffees from another girl's suitcase. And the girl who had seen her snitched on her because we were taught that you had to snitch on everybody. Because if you knew of a friend's sin and you didn't confess it, then you were as guilty as that friend and you would go to hell with that friend. Even though you hadn't committed the sin, you only witnessed it. So they encouraged snitching. Um, and this, this young girl, eight years old was hauled in, in front of all of us. And, um, I'm going to say her name. She's still there. Um, Jenny Christmas. Um, she said, no, a beating is, is too, too mild for this. And she whispered to a guy named David. He disappeared and he came back with a big butcher's knife. And Jenny said to my friend, choose the pipe or the knife. Because the Bible says that thieves get their hands cut off. And you're a thief. Um, anyway, they obviously didn't cut her hand off. But the thing is, is that for me as a 10-year-old sitting there, I didn't doubt that they had the right to cut off her hand. And that if they did, it was God's will that she loses her hand because everything they did was God's will. Um, and also, I had to witness this beating that ensued without showing any emotion. So they, they really teach you early to just divorce yourself from your own humanity. Um, and so how the beatings would typically work is it would involve usually three adult men. The child would be lying down face down on the floor. First, the child would have to pray and thank God for the punishment that she was about to receive. Then one adult male would hold her arm, her upper body and her arms down. The other male would hold her, her feet down. And the third male would stand above her and rain blows down on her um, with a plumbing pipe that was often filled with sand to make it heavier. And um, she had to let lie still. If she squirmed too much, and the blow didn't land where the person intended it to land, then it wouldn't count. Um, and afterwards, she had to thank her abuser for abusing her. Obviously, they didn't use the word abuse. But that is how, and we all sat there witnessing it. And that's how they basically scared us into becoming these perfect little foot soldiers like I became too scared to to say boo or ba or be myself I just would always plaster on a smile and pretend like everything was okay you know I find yeah. it so disturbing because um you know going back to the snitching you know they expect you to uh 
you know, rat on your friend or an acquaintance, uh, would they snitch on each other, the cult, the cult, uh, the, the leaders in your community? The adults? They the were adults. Definitely, definitely snitching among the adults, yes. Even yes. in that day, but would they oh, yeah. each other and all that? They Even when you're Apparently, an adult? yes. Apparently, yes, they were. They were instances where um, adults were beaten. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, they're, they're appalling. And you know what? That prevents you from having truly deep friendships um, because you cannot really trust your friend with your innermost thoughts because she might agree with you that that person is ridiculous and you're laughing at them today but um next week she might be sitting in a service and god talks to her and she goes and confesses what you said about that person or about what you were thinking or anything and then so you can't trust you, you can't build close relationships but that's also what they like you know they 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 don't want you to foster good friendships because then they lose control so as a child, did you have any friendships? Because it sounds like it was hard to trust anybody. Yeah, I I had um, one or two friends. But again, we weren't that close. We kind of became, only really became very close after we left the mission as adults. Yeah. So how, how about within your household? Did you have a close relationship within the family? Or was that also like a lot of fear based in the home as well. Well, my brother and I for starters only saw each other on the bus to school because uh, the boys and girls lived separately. And because girls aren't supposed to talk to boys, that kind of included siblings as well. So my brother and I stopped having a relationship. My sister is four years older than me. And I don't blame her for this because she wasn't my mother. But you have a youngest sister who keeps wetting her bed in the dormitory and that's embarrassing so she didn't really want to have anything to do with me so no there was there was like no uh, there was a complete breakdown of our family relationship um in that time yeah. okay and with your parents did you feel that um were you able to open up and tell them hey at the mission, they're beating the hell out of us, or was it all never. hush hush? I never told them. And then when they came back from Europe um, and we moved to Johannesburg, um, I didn't, I didn't confide in them what we had witnessed and experienced there. And I asked my brother when I was writing my book whether he ever did, and he said he also never did. So I don't think that my dad knew the extent of or my mom for that matter at that time knew the extent of the abuse that we were subjected to. So your father, um, it's how, as I'm reading the book, he actually sounds like he had pure intentions, even, you know, being a missionary and going out and trying to learn French. It didn't sound, I mean, me as a reader, and I'm trying to understand, uh, he sounds like a character who's just in the wrong in the wrong environment and it sounds like he kind of just followed followed along uh, but i'm as i'm reading and i'm i'm seeing him in in my in my mind as i'm reading the pages 
it sounds like he has a good heart and I feel so bad because it's like well in in your experience did you ever do you ever wonder what life would be if you know he stayed a little longer Oh, often. And many years later, his sister told me that he had phoned her the night before he died to say that he had a meeting with the school board and that they had demoted him from being a principal to just being a teacher because he wouldn't go along with some of their policies. Um, he didn't elaborate on the phone to tell her what those were. Um, but he said to her on the phone that night, um, I don't know what dark place I've brought my family to. And then the next day he died of a heart attack. So I do think that if he had lived, we wouldn't have stayed. But I don't know. Yeah, we, we, we don't know. And it's just amazing how, you know, he called his sister, right? And And shared that because sometimes when you're in a cult, in my experience and of people whom I've I've spoken to from my community, it's hard to reach out because when you reach out, you're admitting that you've made a wrong a, a wrong choice or you've been uh, duped or you've been fooled. And it just sounds like it's heartbreaking because so many of us, you know, in in our own healing journeys, I know you've been on your healing journey. I've been on my healing journey. There's so many questions like what ifs, and there's nothing we can do about it. Not not a single thing. Uh, but I think me talking to other survivors gives me kind of a therapy, knowing yeah. that I'm not alone, and that there are other people who are uh, have that same goal to reach healing. So as a 15 year old. Uh, when your father passed, because I, I see here that there's just so much emotions even now, but as a 15 year old, were you allowed to mourn with your family? Or did you still have to be like dead to yourself? I recall um, one night, um, I think it was the night after the funeral, my sister was still there. She started first year studies um, in Pretoria away from there. And so uh, so she was still there. And I recall crying and crying and crying. And eventually my mother saying from her bed, that's enough now, Erica, you'll wake your sister. And the thing that everybody kind of drums into you is that it's God's will. It's God's will that he died. And so I felt, I don't think this was ever expressly told to me, um, but I certainly felt that if I cried and wept and showed the depth of my grief, that I would be rebelling against God. So I had to just tamp down on that. Yeah. Yeah. And and hearing about you know what what you're sharing right now, it, and with my with my family, um, I was the one away on mission. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I left my family at 17 and uh, there was a point there where I even did a podcast on this earlier this week. Um, listen, your grandmother, your yeah, grandmother. Yeah. I, I felt so guilty because um, there I was celebrating my birthday and I felt that I had given in to uh, the devil and this was my punishment. And it just broke me for so many years. Was there any point where, you know, from all that you learned in your cult, did you ever feel that maybe your father's passing might have been your fault? Because I mean, that's what that's what it happened to me. So I'm just wondering if you had a similar emotion. Yeah. So, but but I still can't explain this to this day. But a few weeks before my father died, I woke up one morning just with absolute certainty that one of my parents was going to die. I, I It wasn't a dream. It wasn't. It was just an absolute certainty that one of my parents was going to die. And I remember praying and saying, please, God, don't let it be my dad. I cannot live without my dad. And so when my father died, I thought it was God punishing me because by asking that my father live, I had kind of condemned my mom, you know, to death, you know, because if one of my parents was going to die and I didn't want it to be my dad, well, the other parent that's left is my mother. But I hadn't thought that far when I was praying that it not please not be my dad. But yeah, I blamed myself for many, many years. Um that 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 I had caused my father's death by by praying that he he not be taken, yeah. And it just infuriates me how these cults, and you know, in your group, I know they don't call themselves cult. Like in my all cults, they don't want to call themselves cults. But let's call let's call it what it is. They're cults, and like you said earlier, they're assholes who enjoy seeing people suffering emotionally and they love not just emotionally but even physically beating kids <sighs> um did you at any point feel like i mean because after your your father died you were 15 uh did your relationship with your family ever get closer during that morning period or was it just like separate rooms everyone do their own thing yeah my my brother was completing his schooling in Johannesburg my sister was at university um what uh, studying in Pretoria and my mother started teaching and we I mean I hardly ever saw her so no I was pretty much on my own okay so after your father dies um is there like a uh direct in in catholicism we have like spiritual direction we have uh you know there might be counselors uh -huh. did you mm -hmm. have at any point uh someone who can you know give you counseling or direction so one of the ways in which kwasi sabantu is very different to the protestant faith that they claim they adhere to is um to give you a bit of background, early on when this place was formed, so so it was it was um there was this German South African Erlo Stegen who 
claimed that he had brought revival to the Zulus um, by preaching uh, to them. And then there was this young woman who was um, quite already, I think she was quite godly. And then she apparently died and Elor brought her back to life. But while she was dead, she had some conversations with Jesus up in heaven. And that's when a lot of what they based their their policies on is based on her experience in heaven. And um, I think that the counseling practice that they have, it comes from there. I'm, uh, but I might be mistaken. Either way, you have to confess every single, even the tiniest sin that you commit to another human being, one of the hierarchy, which they call co-workers, who then prays with you. And only then does God forgive you. And only then are you assured salvation. So every night that you go to bed, that you have a single unconfessed sin in your heart, and God comes to take you, which we're told can happen at any time, you will go straight to hell because you haven't confessed your sin. So um, you have to have a counselor. Um, and I mean, like they take such a good name. I mean, counseling is such a good thing, actually. And they just pervert it so badly. Do you have to have a counselor that you confess your sins to at least once a week? Okay. Now, for the, yeah, for the entire um, this is obviously a way in which they control you because they know exactly and they keep tabs on they 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 have the dirty on you because you have to if, if you join them as an adult you have to go back to your childhood and recite every single little sin that you committed from stealing a cookie from your grandmother to stealing funds at your at your work or murdering someone or whatever, you have to confess every single sin. So they, they have records of, of like, obviously they have records of crimes. And I think that that's, look, this is just pure supposition on my part that that might be how they actually keep some people under their thumbs. But as a child, like honestly, how many sins can you actually commit? But to go back to the day my father died, I was called, I was, um, I woke up um, and uh, one of the, 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 one of the leaders of the mission was sitting on the bed and I'd cried myself to sleep after my dad had been driven off to hospital. And he said to me, your father has died. Um, and then he said that my mother is at Elo's house, uh, the leader of the mission. We called him Uncle Elo, but I refuse to call him Uncle anything. He, that he, he's not worth any honorific name. He's at Erlo's house and he, they, he then drove me up there. It took me straight to Erlo, who sat me down and he said, so your father has died. Do you know what that means? And I said, yes, it means my dad's gone to heaven. And he said, well, actually what that means is that if you ever want to see your father again, you will confess your sins and you will live the way that you have to live. Otherwise you'll never see him again. And then he made me confess my sins right then and there to him um, before I was allowed to go to my mother. They insert themselves in every, every single aspect. But anyway, so for the whole year after my father had died, and this also shows how disinterested my mother was in me, I didn't have a counselor. 
I kind of coasted, like coasted. (laughs) (laughs) And at the end of that year, I was 16 years old by now. My mother sat me down and said the school board had met and discussed me because I don't have a counselor and I don't confess my sins. I was obviously in defying them. And they've decided to expel me. And um, because she lives there now, I would have to pack a little suitcase, walk up to the road and hitch a ride somewhere and go find a life for myself. I was 16 years old. Come on. Where was I going to go? What was I going to do? So, of course, I cried and begged her to reconsider. And she said, well, if you get yourself a counselor before school opens and you show me that you're, you know, confessing your sins at least once a week, then you can then you can stay. And so I got myself a counselor. Bad idea. I and should was, rather have packed my little suitcase and gotten, gotten the hell out of there. Was because, your counselor Erlo? No, his name was Muzi Gunene. He was um, around 30. So he was, he was at least like 10, 12, maybe 15 years older than me. But he was young enough to to still be kind of alive um and what made him interesting to me is um he had a great love for music uh, like my dad um and he would also when he preached he would bring history into it you know so it wouldn't just be god's wrath and damnation that's raining down on your head he would actually tell stories of things and that was interesting. History was one of my favorite subjects. I was, I mean, we were, we were a family of readers, you know. And, um, and so I, I auditioned two other people, but they were so cold and awful that I thought I, there's no way I would be able to confess anything to them. So then I asked Muzi if he'd be my counselor, and he said yes. I, of course, didn't know that he had a special proclivity for young girls so you know um the leadership knew about it but i didn't so so you you had the freedom to choose who would be your counselor you wouldn't be told you go to this person no i've i've heard since that other people were were told who to be their counselor but but i had the freedom to choose my counselor um kind of wish that I didn't because <laughs> what an asshole yeah. <laughs> anyway he's in jail now but um not for anything he did to me he, he murdered a woman well he got his son to murder a woman and then he tried to kill his son when his son turned state witness yeah he's a he's a bad egg well yeah. that's a that's a big jump because uh <laughs> so, so so far in the in the timeline that we're at he's a musician he does history <laughs> He's counseling, and then he hires his son as a hitman. So does your, but you mentioned that he's not in prison for anything that he's uh, done with you. Um, Does that part of the timeline, his time with you, does that, uh, does that show his uh, evolving into a monster or do you think that that has a a link to it? I don't know. I think that that kind of place, like, is the kind of place that nourishes and nurtures abusers of all sorts and he was one of the nourish he was one of the abusers that they shielded for many many years 
people were reporting his sexual misdeeds for a long time and they didn't do anything. They allowed him to leave of his own free will. Um, they never reported anything he did. Um, and, and so they shielded him. And he's not the only one. I know of um, at least three pedophiles that the leadership know of their pedophilia that the leadership did nothing, um, nothing about it other than um, the one they spoke to the man and said, hey, you really have to stop um, abusing your 12-year-old daughter. Um, yeah, the man who um, sodomized a five-year-old girl, um, when he was confronted with it 10 years later, when she... Um, spoke about it and said this happened to me and he he was confronted with it he said oh I'm surprised she remembers she was so little and he was allowed to live his life on a compound filled with little girls he's buried there his tombstone is there and then they had a when the school was going they had um they appointed somebody um as boarding master over the boys and he abused the boys horrifically. And they wouldn't listen to the boys who told them that this was happening. And when they eventually understood that this really was happening, they asked him to leave. So I don't know where he is, but he's probably abusing boys wherever he is now. So they, 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 they when they try and make out that they are so pious and everything, I just, I, I just like, oh, I just want to say fuck off and get real because mm. you guys harbored and protected sexual predators in your midst and you didn't care for the survivors. But we really are jumping ahead, hey? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but like, it, it's, it's interesting because, like, uh, when I'm seeing with the members, not the leadership, but with the members for bullshit infractions uh there would be public humiliations and like you said they they get the the pipe and they fill it up and they they beat the person but yet i mean i'm not in the community but i would like to see those leaders who were abusing members let's kick their ass let's let's give them public humiliations let's uh have some justice but it seems like there's no justice for there's no justice no, no. The patriarchy is alive and well at Quasis of Mission. And the thing is, is that they are also unbelievably wealthy because the, the Germans are an industrious lot, you know, and um, they own South Africa's, I think, largest water bottling plant that is sold in every single shop in South Africa. Um, they grow fresh produce and they grow avocados that they export they make millions and millions and millions and millions okay so and besides being a mission it's it's most of all a business oh now it's a oh it's a money making business now okay. i think i think the i think that they just use religion to keep their slaves happy and subdued but that's my opinion I've been, I've been, they've been threatening to take me to court. They've been threatening that they're going to take their detractors to court for the past two years. I'm still waiting for my summons. 
And I think it's because they know that everything I say is the truth. And I have hundreds of people I can call on who were beaten to a pulp who will testify that what, what I say is true. So they they hate my guts, but they 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 read everything I write on social media and they will be listening to this interview. You can bet your bottom dollar on it. But only the leadership, because the the people are told that they mustn't open themselves up to the devil. So they the the, the normal people aren't encouraged or are actually um discouraged and told it's a sin to like listen to us you know the detractors i'm 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 happy that you brought up the leadership and if they if they listen you know good take notes um because i think they need to hear you know leadership if you're listening stop being an asshole so um that's the my the first thing stop being an asshole if you can be an asshole clean your asshole first and um I don't know. I I just stopped that rant um, because I know they they listen all in different calls. They're gonna listen, but they don't change. And I'm sure in even in in my in my situation, they're probably probably listening to my podcast, and then in the sermon, they're probably saying, "Oh my God, uh, pray for Ryan for Ryan. He's cursed." he's he's making up lies no it's like oh yeah it's not no lies these are things that really happen and they never own up to it not even not even a we're sorry we messed up not even that they can do it so if you're listening leadership you know have have some humility i mean even if you i mean i know that's almost like impossible but um you know, you're also speaking to my mother, hey, because she's in the leadership now. Oh yeah, well, hey, you know, I don't. <laughs> I mean, you you got me there. I don't, I don't, now I feel bad. <laughs> no, don't feel bad. No, they need to hear it, but they won't. They won't. The only thing that they will listen to is if people stop buying their products. And South Africans, um, the retailers. Oh, but we are going far ahead in the story. But two years ago, a bunch of us went and spoke to South Africa's largest online news organization, News24, who did a whole expose on this place. And all the retailers, or just about all the retailers, pulled their products from their shelves. And then Kwasi Sabantu paid two lawyers to write a report that made us out to be liars and the retailers have just restocked and people are just buying the water again. So, yeah. Now, this is what pisses me off about religious people. And I'm I'm still I'm still religious in a sense, but I'm a different breed, I guess, cuz I don't like bullshit. So, these religious people, if you're listening, you go get lawyers. You know you fucked up. And you get lawyers to make these victims out to be like liars. Um, it's just so disgusting that these people are claiming to love God, to be sinless. And yet everything they do, they're throwing stones at the victims. You don't give a shit about the victims. And that pisses me off so much that you're that you have this zeal to silence victims, 
to make them look as as though they're demonic and yet there's so much shit that they have on their own platter and i'm sorry it just gets so frustrating yeah. because these people have no business claiming that they follow god because it doesn't sound like you're following anything good or you know i, I do i do believe in god but for those who don't uh, i still feel that there should be a a direction towards goodness and you're claiming to be good holy people but attacking victims screw off that's just so yeah. that that's just so disgusting yeah yeah they and i mean they've been doing this since since their their first detractors or the, no and and they weren't even detractors they were just people who started seeing that things were wrong and speaking to Elo and his his little bunch of henchmen and women and um those people would would be would be hounded out and and kicked out and um when you're kicked out of there you've given up everything as adults you have given up everything you own nothing and you're kicked out of there with nothing and usually you have families to support because they don't believe in birth control so if you're an adult there chances are you probably got married their way which is a very interesting way you marry a complete stranger um <clears throat> the first time you're alone together with your spouse is the night of your marriage um and you have a two-minute talk about the birds and the bees that you get from old Erlo himself while well, when he was still lucid um um separately and um you know, as a woman, you're told to submit whenever your husband wants it. So, um, so the, the, you you have a big fan. You're you there? Hello. Where are they going to go? Sorry, you you cut off for like like twenty seconds, but it's okay. You're back. Sorry, sorry. No, I'm not sure what you said. I mean, you just froze. Ah, yeah. I was just ranting about the fact that people have nowhere to go, um, and that I think that is how they keep people there. Uh, because if you have nowhere, if you're responsible for a family and children, and and you have no recourse, then you're just going to shut up and take whatever they throw at you and deal with it, right? So you mentioned earlier um, that for counselors, you're able to choose. Uh, mm. For marriage, is it a similar process or are you just thrown into, thrown into a matrimony? So I had three proposals in the, in the two years when I was 18 and 19. Um, I got my first proposal the day after I wrote my final matric exam, my final school exam. Um, Elo calls you in and says, this man feels that it's God's will for him to marry you. Go and pray about it and come and tell me your answer. So fortunately, the dude who asked me was a dweeb. Um, he's still there. <laughs> I think every time he probably also listens to me. So poop scared that I'm gonna name him one day I might but you know like why uh, yeah anyway um 
I then came back and I said to Alo, I don't know where I got the courage from, but I said to Alo that God is not giving me peace about this. I don't think so. And then a few months later, the second guy, I had to go pray about it. And then the third one um, was the brother of a man I absolutely despise. And when Alo said to me, this dude feels that it's God's will for him to marry you. I think Ayla was also quite desperate to marry me off because I was a bit of a problem child. Um, and I just said, no, my answer is no. And Ayla was like, aren't you going to pray about it? And I said, no, I can't believe that God would want to put me with this man. Um, and then he got very angry. He's also the only person who's allowed to get angry, by the way, because his is a righteous anger and everybody else's anger is a, is a sinful anger. But had I said yes what would have happened was we would have gotten engaged in church um, and Ella would have stood between us and Ella would have put the engagement ring on my finger. Mm. Um, it freaks me out. They still do it to this day. The preacher puts the wedding, the engagement and the wedding ring on the woman's, the, this young virginal woman's finger. And it grosses me out every time I see it. Um, and then the wedding would happen quite quickly within two or three months because there's no point in dragging things out right because it's not like we are going to get to know each other um we are never alone in a room together on our own um in fact we are very seldom in alone uh, in a room together with other people as well we are kept as separate as possible then we get married um and then with the night of our marriage Elo calls us in one by one gives a two minute birds and bees talk my friend who was a male um told me what the, his talk was from Elo when he got married um Elo said to him look at first you might have trouble finding the hole but don't worry you will figure it out and then he said um then he explained to him that there are, there are certain days in a woman's cycle when she's most fertile if you don't want to have children have a towel on the bed pull out and ejaculate into the towel Boom. That was it. Nothing. I, I asked him, did he, did he say anything at least about some lubrication or getting her um, wet or, or anything like that? And he was like, no, no, no. And he, he, his wife told him that she had basically just been told to submit whenever her husband wants it to submit. Okay. And then, and then, and then, then we're married. For all time okay um real quick for like i know because like i have a a very i think like a good portion of my audience is like uh very catholic and they probably have never no i just, no, I I just mean, named a hundred people no not a not a fan but uh they're probably like oh my god you know getting the holy water and like putting it in their ears like what is, <laughs> is what is this person <laughs> talking about um but but hey it's uh I, I want this platform to be a place where everyone can speak their truth without judgment and that's how we learn not silencing people not not uh, muting people but by by listening and that's how we grow in dialogue and you know in our personal journey um so yeah that i mean because there is no sex education that's the thing is that there's no sex education allowed so that 
so the reason why I said what Elo told him was because that was the very first words he ever heard about sex. Ever. Uh, ever. Um, and that, that that's just to highlight how um, just how deviant they are, really, um, because that kind of not educating people and not allowing people to know that's why they started the school is because the South African authorities had decided to bring sex education into schools in the late 1980s. And Kwasi Savante was like, you're not teaching our children. Um, and so that that was the whole rationale behind starting the school. But what that also allows is people like my counselor, who is a married man, to be alone in a room with a teenage girl. Um, and he can groom me because I know nothing. I know nothing. And he's a man of God. So I am completely defenseless. So what they are doing in with, with this doctrine of not educating anybody is they are creating um uh systems and and they a ripe environment for abuse so i think they should be called out for that yeah um okay so so they don't talk about sex obviously no. but how about like in the family like would the father or the mother you know sit down with the daughter and say hey you know this is how your body is going to be as you start getting older uh, was there a lot of confusion in your childhood, you know, becoming a woman? Yeah, I thought I had stomach cancer for the longest time. Um, and I would wash my knickers by hand. I thought the blood was coming from my stomach, you know. And um, then one day my mother caught me washing my knickers and obviously realized what had happened. She, she called me into her room, sat me down on the bed, prayed, because before she had any conversation we always prayed um and then she said okay so that's blood this is going to happen every month here are some pads you put the into your panties like this um and this is how you dispose of it and now you really have to stay away from boys and then she prayed again and that was the extent to which I had any that was what I learned in my book, I actually write about an extremely traumatic incident when I um, was very ill and I was sent to a gynecologist for an examination and my mother didn't prepare me um, for what he was going to do. And the, the, the absolute horror and the shock of that invasion when I didn't realize that my body had a cavity where somebody could insert something, you know, um, so so no the, the complete and utter ignorance um and and they thrive on ignorance they thrive on keeping their followers and their girl children ignorant because that's how you control them and, and they're so much easier to abuse when they don't know anything um uh, i find it interesting that you use the word ignorance because like i know leaders they'll say something like our members are just innocent. But here you're using the word ignorant. Uh, what would be the difference uh, for you between innocence and ignorance? Hmm. That's a really interesting distinction there. 
um, Ryan, and and um, I I think that you're able to retain your innocence even when you're not ignorant, because if if an adult can teach you about things in an age appropriate way, um, you retain your innocence, but you are not ignorant enough now to lead you to be that open to abuse because you can lose your innocence and still be completely ignorant like I lost my innocence when my counselor started um, grooming and sexually molesting me but I was still completely ignorant but I don't think I was but I, I kind of was still innocent but I, oh, it's hmm, I'm gonna be pondering that one for a while it, it, it gets the mind you know kind of running because um I know like call, even in uh toxic families you know you might have a father who's extremely toxically overprotective and the idea is oh I'm just trying to keep my children innocent but at the same time they're keeping them ignorant and open to abuse open to being taken advantage of and it sounds like they've done that so much even in your own experience definitely definitely you saw we just lost power <laughs> i was prepared for it <laughs> uh, that's, that's a, a, is that a sign for the cult leaders no, that's a sign that in South Africa, our politicians have um, funded our country and our infrastructure. And we have to live with a schedule of when we will not have electricity um, for a number of hours every day because we simply, our infrastructure was neglected to such a great extent. So, yeah, that's the reality of living in South Africa at the moment. <laughs> Okay, yeah. so will the power come back on like soon or would it be a few hours? It'll usually be about two and a half hours. Oh god. At yeah. the moment. At the moment. Yeah. We're we're on stage three, I think. When you get to like stage seven and stage eight, then it's four or five hours at a time. And then you're lucky if you have three hours of electricity a day. But um it it doesn't often get that bad. Fingers crossed. Okay, fingers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, I'm going to start wrapping up this episode because this is going to be a two part. Uh, but before we we end the episode, I just wanted to uh, say real quick that I do not hate people who are in cults. Um, and yeah. I know I was speaking very harshly earlier because, I mean, yeah. it is frustrating. But at the same time, you know, for, if a member who isn't a leader is listening, I hope that they're able to understand that outside there is a world open to being compassionate loving and even for leaders i mean i think that yes. so many of them there's they have this idea that everyone's going to hate them i mean understand many of us are pissed off at you but at the same time we're not that cult environment there is uh ways for you to find healing for those who are in the leadership or who are members and in our next episode, we're going to talk more about Erica's healing journey and how she was able to come to to writing her book and sharing with the world her experiences. So stay tuned, and uh, that'll be the next episode. So thank you very much, Erica. 
Thank you, Ryan.